I'm so thankful that you're joining us again today in this Christmas season for the continuation of a series we are in called Hark. Now that word is uniquely, specifically for us as Americans, a Christmas term because as soon as I say hark, you think of that classic and wonderful Christmas carol to hark the herald angels sing. And for those of you that joined us last week, you know that what we are doing in this series is we are leaning into the truth of this powerful Christmas song because there is so much truth and hope and promise that we are to hark unto. You see, to hark, as we've been learning, is to do something that we don't do normally. It's to listen closely. Oh, do we love a headline today, don't we? Oh, do we love to think that we understand the entirety of a subject because we listen to a 15-minute podcast about it? Do we love to grab a snippet, grab a word, grab a phrase, and run? That's not to hark. <laughs> to hark is to listen closely, to contemplate, to think, to process deeply what is being announced when we hark what the herald is saying, we are understanding there's an announcement that's coming and the content of that announcement is something I need to listen closely to. There's an announcement being made that you need. Hark the herald. Now let's do verse two, shall we? Have you ever been surprised by the content of something? Like you thought it was one thing when you looked at it from afar, but then when you got into it, you was like, oh, I didn't know this was like this. Maybe you have or somebody has recommended to you a movie before, right? And maybe because you're a person of faith or you're trying to, you know, uh, not allow some, uh, some, some craziness into your mind or into your spirit, you try to avoid certain things, or they act like they try to avoid certain things, and they will recommend a movie to you, and maybe you will get with said friend and watch the movie, or maybe they're at their house watching a movie, you in your space watching a movie, and you start texting and being like, oh my goodness, what is wrong with you and this movie because of the content of it? They acted like it was a clean movie and you gathered the children around and you're like, y'all need to cover your eyes and get, in fact, just turn it off. Like, cause you were surprised by the content. I think this happens with Christmas movies like every year. I mean, as a parent, as someone who also will uh, have people around like to watch it, I forget what is in some movies. There are movies that we love. Movies that we celebrate, movies that we'll talk about. Oh, I love watching that every year. And because we don't watch them on the regular, we ain't like that. We watch them at Christmas. Sometimes you forget all that's in there. One of my favorite Christmas movies is A Medea's Christmas. I love Medea's Christmas. But let me go ahead and tell you something about Medea's Christmas and every other Medea movie. There is some um, questionable subject matter. I remember the first time we watched a Medea's Christmas and I invited uh, my child in on this humor and, and the wonder that is a Medea's Christmas. And he asked some questions about some of them jokes and I didn't really want to explain what was going on because I had forgotten the content of the movie. There are people who love Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation is funny, don't get, don't, don't get it twisted, but uh, 
It's funny how everybody, when they watch Christmas Vacation, or they tell you, you should watch Christmas Vacation, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah Christmas Vacation is great. Well, except the one part. Uh, except the one part, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny how we will forget or be surprised by the content of it. I get surprised. I love them. Don't get it twisted. But I get surprised. If you were to really hark verse 2, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you might be surprised. Like if you were to, as we're going to do in these moments, really lean into the announcement being made, you might be surprised because the second verse of this classic Christmas carol leans into an aspect of theological understanding that most wouldn't trouble to wade into in such a festive song, right? We're supposed to be holly and jolly, mistletoe and, and crumpets and trinkets and toy. And like we're supposed to sing about this stuff, some nonsensical whatevers that we don't even hardly know. But yet the second verse of Hark the Herald chooses to wade into some significant matters that quite honestly don't feel all that festive. You see, the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing wades into the deep waters that is the theological understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The fact that Christians believe Jesus is God in the flesh. Let's read this second verse and maybe go on a little journey for a moment and find that uh, maybe it's not as surprising as we should think. Verse 2, hark the herald angels sing. You can sing it from your house. You can play your favorite version if you like. I ain't going to sing it because my version, singing it will not be your favorite version. Let's read these words. Here's the way the second verse of hark the herald angels sing is recorded. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with man as man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. This is an articulation of the mystery of what is the incarnation. Now, why would you take an entire verse of a song, or really to go back to when it was written and how it was written, an entire stanza of a poem, if you were so inspired by church bells on Christmas morning? You see, that is the historical record of how uh, Charles Wesley came about being inspired to write this song. He was walking through the city on Christmas morning. I can imagine in the place in the world where he was, there was snow on the ground and it was everything you would think of. I mean, just, just think for a second about a, about a Christmas carol and what you've seen in the movie. Like that is what he's walking through. And on Christmas morning, he's hearing these church bells and everything is festive and all the smells and all the sounds are there. And there's something inspiring going on on the inside of this relatively new Jesus follower. At the time, Charles Wesley had been a Christian for about a year. But yet he was uh, an artist 
a, uh, a poet, one who would end up writing thousands of songs. And he was inspired on this Christmas morning with all of its festivities and all of its arrangements, all of its sights and smells, to yes, pen, hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn. Peace on earth that we rock with. But why take an entire stanza, an entire paragraph, an entire verse, and communicate such a weighty theological idea? The incarnation of Jesus, considering when most of us approach Christmas and the Christmas season, we are more concerned about our felt needs. We're more concerned about the things that we see and the things that we want and the things that we can. And that was true a few hundred years ago when he was pinning these words. We're concerned with having our felt needs met and understanding the incarnation of Jesus Christ doesn't seem to meet that need. But what if it does? What if understanding the incarnation of Jesus is the first step to being able to grasp this personal and weighty and walk with you every day of your life thought that God gets you? What do I mean, though, by incarnation? I don't mean to use words. Those of you who are regulars at believing or maybe you've listened to, to sermons here, we, we, we don't use words just for the sake of using words. We don't try to drown people in knowledge and try to sound smart on a sermon but not make it make sense. What do we mean by incarnation? What we mean very simply is this, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is truly and fully God. Divinity flowed through him, flows through him totally and completely. But Jesus is truly and completely flesh, human. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's not there's a lot of God and a lot of human. There's a lot of divinity and a lot of humanity within. No, 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 no. It's not when these powers combine and all of a sudden, no, 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 no. Fully God, fully man, completely both. The gospel writer John puts this so eloquently and so beautifully as he begins his gospel record of Jesus's life. He starts in John chapter one, verse one, stating it this way. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, as he refers to word here, he is referring to Jesus, although it'll be a little later that he connects the dots, that word means, he, but in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Jesus, as he is saying, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, through Jesus, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. There is nothing that has been formed, nothing that's been shaped or fashioned that Jesus was not involved in. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 14 says this. It says that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. Listen, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When I say 
that this stanza, this verse, is about the incarnation of Jesus. This is what I'm talking about. When I say that we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that is his incarnation on display, as John reveals it. To clarify even further, so that you don't water down or layer down what I'm saying, please understand and do not miss this. When we talk about Jesus, you need to understand that Jesus is God. That's why we don't just worship some abstract being called God. Jesus is God. He's not a prophet. Some people like to limit and confine Jesus to the prophetic role that he occupied. Did he prophesy? Did he function as a prophet? Did he fulfill prophecy? Absolutely. But Jesus is far more than a prophet because if you confine him just to being a prophet, you could find yourself in many other religions. Islam believes Jesus was a prophet, believes he is one of the great prophets like Moses and David and Muhammad. But Jesus is much more than a prophet. Some people believe that Jesus is a, a teacher. No, Jesus is not a teacher. Although he taught in some of his teachings, some of his most famous ones are recorded in these gospel accounts that we read and study. The New Testament is filled with the teachings and the, and the understandings of Jesus. His parables are famous and even recited and, and recorded by people today who know nothing about God. His Teachings are taken by people who simply want to be spiritual and will tell you you should love your neighbor or pick that log up out of your own eye before you come messing with my bed. They love the teachings of Jesus, but following the teachings of Jesus or understanding the teachings of Jesus or limiting Jesus to simply being a teacher is to limit who he is. Because if you believe Jesus is a teacher, you may just be a spiritual person. You can be an atheist and believe Jesus is teacher. You can be an atheist an agnostic and believe that Jesus is teacher. People who believe that Jesus is teacher find themselves in Hinduism and Buddhism alike. That's why you cannot simply limit Jesus to being a prophet. You can't simply limit him to being a teacher. Jesus is not just another historical figure. Although it's his history, his life, that was so transformative and so powerful that it literally split time in two. It doesn't matter what you call it. People love to not call it B.C. and A.D. anymore, before Christ and after his death, Anno Domini. They love to, 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 to call it different things and put different labels on it. That's fine. Put different labels on it. But when you do your research and you find out why time was split, it comes back to someone who was far greater than just a significant historical figure. He is more than that. The triune God. The eternally existent one, the one there when all of time began, was with God and was God, put on flesh while never abandoning his deity. Jesus is God. But why incarnate? Why put on flesh? He could have done what he needed to do however he wanted to do it. He is God. He was God from the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus. Why was incarnation his method? 
I'd love to give you two things to write down today, and it's the second one wherewith we will spend our time on today. As we take this second stanza, the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and bring it to your life, bring it to your Monday, bring it to your Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, bring it to your festivities, bring it to every single season of your life. I want you to understand as Jesus is God that please, Jesus never left divinity. And the reason is, is so he can stay with you. Jesus made a promise at the end of his earthly time. He said, you can be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He can't make that promise if his divinity has escaped him. Because Jesus said he would stay with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. That he would walk with you. He would be with you. You would never find yourself in a place where he couldn't reach you. He couldn't touch you. He couldn't go with you. He can say that because divinity never left him. Jesus never left divinity so God can stay with you. Write this down as well. Jesus put on humanity so that God can feel with you. Fully God, fully man. He never left his divinity so that he could stay with you, but he put on humanity so that he can feel with you. You know, it bothers me personally when people try to act like they understand what I'm going through. They try to act like they feel what I feel. They've been through what I've been through. And I know good and doggone well they hadn't experienced it on the level that I've experienced. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I, mean, I can remember my son was born with a congenital heart defect. And it was a very serious heart situation. My son uh, spent the first many weeks of his life in the most locked down spot inside of the best hospital in like all of the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. There were literally seven rooms in the cardiac ICU buried in the belly of this hospital. Uh, each room had multiple nurses and multiple attendants because these were the sickest and most volatile in, in, in all of the hospital care. And while we were there, because we lived at the hospital for weeks, we would have people come in and, and, and they would visit us and not go to the room because that was off limits, but they would come to the lobby to see us and bring us food or even after the fact, once we got out of the hospital and they would love to try to empathize and I understand the heart, they'd love to try to connect and, and, and they'd heard that there was this heart issue with our son and, and, they, and, and it moved them and they wanted to try to connect and so maybe they had, maybe they had, had a child that had some little heart issue or maybe they had a sister or a brother or knew somebody that had a little and they talk about oh you know I, I know how you feel my my niece was born with a heart murmur now I'm nice in those settings but what I wanted to say about your little heart murmur Listen, I'm not diminishing the severity of a heart murmur. 
But let me explain to you what a heart murmur is. A heart murmur is a tiny little hole between two of the chambers of one's heart. Everything else is fully functioning and fashioned and fine. In fact, most heart murmurs close up on their own. Heart murmurs can actually be something good for the development of one's heart because it allows the blood to flow a little more freely while some of the arteries and, and the capillaries, these things are fully forming as a child grows. There's nothing to worry about. I know as a parent, anytime anything is not 100% perfect, it's like, oh, so I get you. But please miss understanding what we went through by the fact you had a niece with a heart murmur. Our baby boy started looking like a smurf at 24 hours old, turned blue because there was no oxygen in the blood within his body. He didn't have a heart murmur with some little, little chambers, kind of got this tiny little microscopic almost hole between them. Our boy didn't have chambers in his heart. They had to construct them. They had to create. He has in his heart today a synthetic piece functioning as his aortic valve. He had half a dozen open heart surgeries before he was five weeks old. Please miss me with understanding what I have been through while you got a niece with a heart murmur. You know what I'm saying? I ain't trying to be insensitive, trying to act like I don't care, trying to act like people don't understand or rationalize or realize, but you've had it happen to you. People talk about, oh, I know, I know it's, I know it's hard out there. And they ain't never been out there like you. I know it's hard being a parent. And they say that, but they ain't never had to be a single parent trying to function as mom and dad, dad and mom. Oh, I know it's, uh, I know it's difficult not really having parents in your life, but th th their parents were in their lives for 40 or 50 or 60 years. You ain't never had parents in your life a day in your life. Oh, I want to know what it's like, man. This economy is crazy. Yeah, this economy is crazy. But for them, the craziness forced them out of work. And now they haven't had consistent employment in two years. And it's... Don't act like you understand me. We've all felt it. We've all had something go on where that same kind of you don't get it. And I think that that's the pushback some of us have towards God. That he doesn't understand me. Some of us, the rub that we have with God, the, the issue that we would take on is that he doesn't get me. See, many of us believe that God doesn't feel our pain. He doesn't know what we're going through. Doesn't even really care about our trials, just cares about our tithes. Doesn't really care about our situation, just cares about our salvation. He doesn't understand our longings. He doesn't understand the overwhelming nature of navigating the complexities of our life and the unraveling of our lives due to the consequences of the choices we make. He doesn't get us. That's the way some of us feel. Can I share with you a profound reality that connects us back to John 1 that's recorded by the writer in Hebrews? Book of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16 articulate these words to us. And my prayer is that these would begin to minister to you as we understand the significance for you, me, right here, right now, of the humanity of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and then he identifies who he is, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word from the beginning, let us hold fast to our confession. Listen to this next sentence. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, 
yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As Charles Wesley gets to the second stanza of his poem, the second verse of this song that we know, that we love, but we do not understand. The attention he's trying to draw as he wades us into the deep waters of the incarnation of Jesus is to hark this idea. God gets you. Somebody needs to help me and put this in the chat right now. God gets you. Come on, somebody sitting in their living room listening to this podcast a uh, day from now, weeks from now, months from now, needs to articulate this out loud. God gets me. God gets me. Can I tell you, that is the resounding message flowing through the sentences found in this second stanza, that God gets you. Yes, he created you, but this is a confidence that we have that because he was God in the flesh, his incarnation matters to us. This is why we are to listen closely to the announcement that all of the entirety of this most famous Christmas carol centers around. Why do we sing and why do we celebrate and why do we lean into God's incarnation? Because it tells us that he gets us. It reminds us that he gets us. It communicates to me that he gets me. And I came today to tell you that no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, God gets you. I don't care how you feel. I don't care where you find yourself in the season of life. I need you to know God gets you. He understands your pain. He knows the depths of your trauma the hurts that you feel, the emotions that sometimes you don't even know how to articulate what you are navigating, what you are feeling, what you are going through. The God who formed you, the God who put on flesh for you understands you. So today for these few moments, what I want to do is I want to remind you that no matter what, God gets you. God gets you. He gets you, and I want to show you that. So if you're the note-taking type, I'd love for you to write these down. But some of you, I really believe, even in this moment, you're just going to simply need to drink this in for a few moments. It's not about notes. Notes will be available on our website. You can fill them in anytime you want. Download them from there. Get them filled in. It's, it's, it's available. What's most important is that the Spirit of God, who is always with you, he never leaves you because he never left his divinity, so he never has to leave you. But he put on humanity so he understands you. I want you to know today that God gets you. And so today, friend, listen to me. If you're sad, God gets you. If the overwhelming emotion that is most forefront and most real to you right now is the fact that you're sad, God gets you. The book of Matthew reminds us that at one point in Jesus' life, he was so overwhelmed with sorrow, he was moved to the point of death. That was one of the articulations of Jesus when they're talking about him. They don't describe him uh, in all cases, in all ways, as just this celebrator, although Jesus seemed to be the life of the party at times. But the scriptures call him a man of sorrows. 
And this season has a way of bringing out sorrow and sadness in us in a significant way. Psychologists have found that people get sadder in general at Christmas. And sad people, people who live most of their days with sad as their predominant emotion, become the saddest. Maybe it's because of the stress induced by increased responsibilities or increased obligations or increased expectations in this season. Maybe it's stress physically or stress financially or stress emotionally. Maybe it's all the family gatherings you have to find yourself at. Maybe it's the lack of family gatherings that you get invited to. Maybe it's the reflecting that you do, the evaluating that comes on. And you combat that with all of the fa-la-la-la-las that you hear everywhere because nobody wants to write a sad Christmas song. But what's true is that the most prevailing emotion for most people in this season is one of sadness. Can I tell you, if you're sad, God gets you. And he's not asking you to not be sad. But he wants you to know you can find your hope in him. That he is hope. A hope that's greater than whatever you are going through. A hope that's stronger, that can overwhelm and overcome the sadness that feels so insurmountable to you, for you, and on you. God gets you if you're sad. But not only that, if you're tempted in this season or in any season, God gets you. In fact, it's the gospel writer Mark who begins his account literally in the first chapter, giving us detail into the temptation of Jesus. That for 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus was in the wilderness. And during that time, he was tempted by the Satan himself. The strange reality is, is when we are tempted, by whatever we are tempted by, whatever our vice may be. It's just the temptation, not even the giving into the temptation, but the appearance of the temptation that sometimes makes us feel separated from God because we thought that thought, because we wanted that thing again, because we felt that emotion again. We were tempted to do what we know we shouldn't do. We haven't even done it yet, but the temptation somehow leaves us feeling gross. That temptation somehow leaves us feeling separated. That temptation somehow leaves us feeling distant from the God who says he loves us, the God who says he can use us. It shouldn't be. Because Jesus was tempted, just like you're tempted. He put on humanity. So if you're tempted, God gets you. And he's reminding you today, maybe even through these words, that temptation isn't a sin. And he, and in him, is the power to overcome whatever that temptation might be. You don't have to give in to your temptation. You don't have to be known as the person who the adjective that most people use to describe you really is the byproduct of you giving into the temptation that you continue trying to fight but always seems to win against you. You need to understand that God sees you. If you're tempted, God sees you. When that temptation haunts you in your mind, it haunts you to go, it haunts you to say, it causes you to want to do, God gets you. 
He's not far off from us. But in these moments, he's close to us. If you're sad, he gets you. If you're tempted, he gets you. Would you write this down? Or maybe just let it minister to your heart. If you're broke, God gets you. Matthew gives us this statement that Jesus made about his own financial life. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, man, even little animals that be flying around, running on the ground, got somewhere to call home. I have no home. You know, this season has a way of, like, putting the spotlight on what you don't have and what you can't afford. Right? Like, all of the advertisements, all of the photos that you see on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, all the stuff you be watching, people being able to, you think, there's no way I could afford that. Toys that your kids are asking for, you're like, there ain't no way. The stuff that somehow in the algorithm has figured out that you're interested in that just keeps presenting itself, no matter where you go, you on the internet, you searching for something, you on TikTok, you on Instagram, and it just keeps finding you and finding you, and you just want to yell at your phone, I can't afford you! The season has a way of shining that light real bright on what we can't get. Because uh, we see what their party looks like and what's happening with their festivities. And some people even got so much money, they, they be, they be uh, having, having the party and having the festivity and going on a trip too. And you're like, what? Some of us just trying to keep the lights on. Trying to make sure it can be warm in the house. Hard to put a bow on heat. But like when it's cold outside, it's neat. Some of us are struggling some of you right now it's hard not to cry over what reality is listen I get it I get it I even I think feel this on a greater level right now because as we're recording this as you're watching this at church online we have just opened and closed our Christmas Palooza registration for this year it's amazing we're going to serve nearly 2,000 kids this year, Christmas toys. And we opened our registration online on Thursday at 4 p.m. All the spots that we had were made available at 4 p.m. on Thursday. What I'm about to tell you is not an exaggeration. Please understand, this is not a preacher story, okay? This is, I got receipts. At 4.20 p.m., 20 minutes later, we were at capacity on every night. Every single slot had been filled. We put a limit on the number of children that each family could register to try to help as many families as far, as wide as we could. But the amount of calls that I've taken, the amount of emails that we've received, the amount of messages on Facebook and you know DMs and stuff from people just saying, man, I tried, I want to, I need. It's been a hard year. Listen, I get it. But more than I get it, I want you to know that God gets it. If 
Maybe you feel in some kind of way today like you're not the friend, you're not the parent, you're not the provider, you're not the husband, the wife, the whatever, that maybe you feel society is telling you you need to be, because really what's true right now, man, we broke. <laughs> like we're doing everything we can to, to stay in this house. God gets you. And he's trying to show you that your worth isn't in the stuff that you can or can't acquire. That is not what makes you valuable. Your worth is not in all that you were able to provide or what you, you're not worth more because you provided more or worth less because you provided less. God understands. He gets you. See, he gets you. Yes, if you're broke, but also if you're disappointed, God gets you. In Luke 13, the writer articulates Jesus' prayer of disappointment over the inability to see change and transformation in Jerusalem like Jesus wanted to see. I think a lot of us, as we do something very healthy and very good, we reflect that sometimes uh, what we find is that reflection, while it's a necessary tool and it's a powerful tool, that sometimes we reflect until it hurts. And sometimes reflecting on the last few weeks or last several months or last year hurts. Because when you start to look back at this last year, and it doesn't really look like the kind of year that would be celebrated. You, you, you don't have all the accolades to show. Everything wasn't up and to the right. You told yourself you would never be in this position again, but yet here you are a year later in this position again. Some of you, what's true today is you're disappointed. You haven't even had the words to articulate what you feel, but you look back on this last season of your life, this last six months, this last five years, this last three weeks, and you are disappointed. If you're disappointed, God gets you. He knows what it's like to have a dream, to have desire, to have want, and it not come to be. Here's what's beautiful about our God who stepped into divinity. If you're in a low place, he can meet you there. I love the way the 23rd Psalm recounts it. It says uh, that even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. He gets you if you're disappointed. He gets you if you find yourself today in a low place. If you're tired, hear me. God gets you. If you are worn out and weak and exhausted from all that you have been doing, God gets you. John 4 communicates one of the great stories in Jesus' ministry. But it all started with Jesus being so tired, he had to sit down on top of a well. He's like, I'm going to make myself a seat. I know this ain't what this is for, but I'm going to sit down because I am tired. You know, this time of year finds many of us pouring out in different ways. 
Some people that don't normally pour out. Some people that don't normally have people over to the house have people over to the house. Sometimes people who don't normally serve find themselves in a place where they're trying to serve. Hear me. It's a terrible place to pour out from empty, though. To try to pour and realize, I have nothing to offer. There's nothing in the can, nothing in the tank. I can't give anything. Can I tell you, if you're tired today, Jesus invites you to come and find rest for your soul. You think you need a nap, and you might. But you also need your soul to truly rest. I know everyone around you seems to be running and everyone around you seems to be hustling and everyone around you seems to be moving so quickly. But please understand, if you're tired, God gets you. He ain't need you to be Superman or Superwoman. He's the super. Isn't that what the supernatural even is? When we bring our natural and he puts his super on it. It's not about how much natural we bring because in our weakness, he is strong. See, God gets you today if you're tired. And he can give your soul the rest it needs that will full fuel you completely. God gets you. If you're rejected today, God gets you. John 6, 66 tells us that from that time forward, many of his disciples turned their back on Jesus did not follow him anymore. See, there was a time when Jesus was the greatest show in town. Jesus was the most popular everything, and all of these people came around Jesus. But then all of a sudden, Jesus started talking about the cost of discipleship, started talking about the work that God had called him to do, and uh, the crowd thinned out a little bit. You know, we have a way of remembering every person who leaves our life, don't we? It's funny, we often lose count and don't take good record of those who come into our life. But anyone who walks away, anyone who abandons us, any friend that turns their back on us, any person that walked with us through a season or two, but now don't want to return any phone calls from us, we have a way of remembering those so clearly and heaping upon our shoulders the weight of that rejection. Now, I think about it too, personally. People I used to see all the time. People I used to serve with. People I used to have over at the house all the time. People I used to spend these moments of the year with that now, like they're not a part of my life. Whether it's because of distance or because of grievance, our relationship is fractured. When people who could have stood up didn't stand up for you and it leaves you feeling rejected. Wondering, do I matter? Am I worth anything? Listen, God gets you. And the scripture reminds us that he is going to be a friend that never leaves you no matter what, that sticks closer than a brother. He knows what it's like to have those who clapped and cheered for him to turn their back on him. He knows. So if you feel rejected today because your family ain't want nothing to do with you, if you feel rejected today because your best friend from six months ago now won't return your call, if you feel rejected today because the company that you had served so faithfully for so long now said we no longer are in need of your services, if you feel rejected, please understand, God gets you. And finally today, if you're lonely, God gets you. 
Matthew 27 articulates words from a man hanging on a cross who may have experienced the most lonely moment any human has ever experienced because fully God and fully man. But hanging on that cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This time of year is supposed to be the most wonderful time of year, but for many of us, it's the loneliest time of year. Some of us, it's lonely because we have an empty house. Some of it's, we feel lonely because we keep looking at those chairs at the dinner table that stay empty. Nobody, it seems, ever even wants to sit in them. Some of us experience this loneliness and we are in crowds of people. We're in rooms filled with people. We're in houses crammed with children and adults and elderly adults and everybody. And we're in rooms that are full, but we still feel all alone because we think nobody understands us. Nobody gets us. The truth is those feelings of loneliness are real. And while it feels like no one understands you, while it feels like no one cares, here is the truth. God does. If you're lonely today, God gets you. And he's going to be with you. He's going to meet you even now. Friend, what I want you to know today, more than anything, through the articulation of this great theological idea as communicated to us in the second verse of Hark the Herald, but reverberated throughout the scripture. God gets you. It doesn't matter where you find yourself in this moment, on top of the mountain or the mountain on top of you. It does not matter what the season behind you or season in front of you looks like. Can I tell you, wherever you are, because he put on humanity, wherever you are, because he remained fully in his divinity, wherever you are, God gets you. And whatever you need, God is. If you're lonely, he'll be your friend. If you're broke, he'll be your provider. If you're disappointed, he will be your strength. Come on, if you, will, if you are down today, he will be the one who lifts you up. If you need a friend, he will stand by you, stand by your side. Come on, if you feel rejected by everyone, you need to know today there is one who will never leave you, never forsake you. He gets you. And today, my prayer has been for you that you would know closeness to him today. Maybe some of you listening to this podcast, watching this sermon online, you don't know him like this. Can I tell you, you can. You can know what it's like to have a friend that'll stick closer than a brother. You can know what it's like that when you're disappointed, he'll be the one that's there for you. You can know what it's like to have the one that when you're tempted, he will be your strength. You can know this, but you have to know him. And so today I'm going to pray a prayer for all of us. Whether you're a person of faith or not, if you want God to come close to you in this moment, would you just lean in as I pray? Maybe even repeat these words with me. Just say, Jesus, today I recognize that you put on humanity for me. And you understand me. You understand 
what I'm going through. You understand this season of my life. And so be close to me now. Be my strength and be my peace and be my protector and be my hope. God, I believe that you get me. So show up in my life. Be my peace and be my provision and be my strength and be my song. Be my hope in the morning and my confidence at night. Be all that I need because I know that you can be. God, I thank you for putting on humanity so that you could get me. I feel seen. I feel heard. But most importantly, I feel loved. So thank you for loving me. And thank you for getting me. I give you all the honor. And I give you all the praise, Jesus. In your precious name, I pray. And everybody said, amen.